Season's greetings, fellow Gorilla Scholar Warriors. This is CJ, your Renaissance man for the New Dark Age. And welcome to a Christmas edition of the Dangerous History Podcast. In this episode, I'm going to be talking about the Christmas truce in 1914 on the Western Front during the first year of the First World War. An event that was both beautiful and tragic. Beautiful because it occurred at all, but tragic in that thanks to the rulers on both sides, it didn't last and never occurred again to anything near the same magnitude. But before we get into that, I do have to give some Patreon shoutouts, some thank yous to some great people who have stepped up to help support this show over at patreon.com slash profcj. And Patreon shoutouts this time go to Guy and also to Jlod, and forgive me if I pr- mispronounced your name, uh, Jlod. Guy, thank you both very much for helping out the show. If you enjoy this show, please consider helping it out as well. If you sign up for a pledge of a buck per episode or more over at patreon.com slash profcj, you'll have access to special bonus episodes there that are available nowhere else. Thanks to those of you who've signed up and been supporting the show that way. Also, thanks very much to everyone who's been doing their Amazon Christmas shopping by first going through my Amazon affiliate links. I very much appreciate all the help I can get to keep producing and keep improving the Dangerous History podcast. So anyway, now let's get on to the story of the Christmas truce. Imagine you're a British soldier 101 years ago on the Western Front. There you are in the trenches of December of 1914, clutching your already battle-scarred Lee Enfield rifle. It's cold, it's damp, muddy, frosty. Mud is everywhere, and there's standing water in your trench in many areas. In fact, in a few places, there's knee-deep standing water. You've already been through hell. You've definitely seen a lot of men killed and maimed, maybe even killed a few enemies yourself, maybe not. But you've already been through more than enough to traumatize most any normal person. It's Christmas Eve, and you really wish you were home. You hate the enemy, for sure. After all, without him, you wouldn't be here, but... You also hate, at least as much, and on occasion even more, the weather, the food, the trenches. You hate your officers. You hate the politicians who made you have to go here and do what you're doing. You've already witnessed some men lose feet and worse to trench foot and other illnesses. If anything, you're even more worried about disease than you are about enemy bullets. And well, you should be. You're going through a care package you got from home, some letters, some treats, a few other miscellaneous goodies, and you know it's all intended to cheer you up, but it actually has the opposite effect. It makes you miss home and hate this war even more by reminding you of how much better it would be if this all hadn't happened. When the war started, you eagerly joined up. You'd been told since you were a little toddler about your duty to king and country and empire and about the great threat of the German menace. When the war began, you were told that your country had to step in to help poor little Belgium, to protect them from the big bad German bullies. And you stepped up to do your part. After all, if there's one thing the British Empire is known for, it's standing up for the rights of small nations, right? little voice in the back of your head had spoken that when you joined up, but still, more powerful was the voice of belief. Believing in your country and its ideals. Wanting to do good. If anything, you were most worried that the war might be over before you could get properly trained and shipped up to the front lines. You were worried you'd miss it. Everyone was saying the war would be over by Christmas. But now as you shiver in a muddy trench, you realize that 
That's just a sad, sorry joke. Now you and almost everybody knows. It will be several more Christmases, at least, before this war's done. This point you've lost count of how many friends and acquaintances you've seen killed or maimed. As you sit there in the dusk, suddenly something snaps you out of being lost in your own. It's singing. Coming from the trenches of the Huns across no man's land. The song sounds vaguely familiar, but you can't quite place it. It's a trick, says Jim, the man on your right. Fucking Hun trick. The man on your left, Tommy, bravely and stupidly, peeks up above the rim of the trench. A few of them are coming our way, he says. They're not carrying rifles. One's waving a white handkerchief, another's carrying an evergreen bough. And there's lights all over their trench lines. That's when you suddenly place the song. It's a Christmas carol. It's Silent Night. They're singing the original German version. You remember hearing somewhere that it was a German song first, before it was translated into English. Maybe we should go talk to them, Tommy says. From down the trench, you hear your unit commander warning no one to talk to the approaching Huns. He says you should be ready to shoot if they come much closer. You look at Tommy. Tommy looks at you. Fuck it, it's Christmas, Tommy says. He lays down his Enfield and goes over the top, unarmed, and you follow. Out there in no man's land, amongst the mangled bodies that are there from previous battles in recent weeks, you find a bunch of guys who don't look much different from you other than their uniforms are different shade and have some different accoutrements. Even though these guys speak another language, they're not really all that different and they're certainly not the monsters you were told in propaganda. Thankfully, a few of them speak English and a few of your comrades speak German at least enough to communicate. And something magical happens. You begin singing together. Then you drink and smoke together. You commiserate together. You let each other know that you'd really rather be somewhere else, anywhere else, doing anything else than fighting this war. And that you don't understand the reasons for this war at all. Neither do they. You trade a few little knickknacks and treats. Maybe strike up a soccer game. And then maybe the next day... The day after that, you've got to get back to trying to mass slaughter each other. But whereas the man in that other trench used to be just a crude stereotype of a barbarian, just a Bosch or a Hun, now he's a man named Fritz. He's a man from a very similar socioeconomic background as you, a man with a mother and a wife and a kid, a man who really doesn't want to be here any more than, and really deep down doesn't want to hurt you or kill you any more than you want to do the same to him. So I ask you, if you were that British soldier, or a French or German one, with a similar experience that Christmas, how hard would it be the next time you lined up your rifle sights on a quote-unquote enemy and got ready to squeeze that trigger? How much harder would it be to kill a real human being instead of the dehumanized monster that's been depicted in all the propaganda you've been bludgeoned with for most of your life. This is the story of the Christmas truce, and we've got to give the context. If you're not familiar with World War I, um, and if you've not listened to my, my miniseries on it way back uh, over a year ago, the war began in August 1914. And of course, like I said, when the war began, almost everyone thought it would be over relatively quickly, a few months at most. And it is sadly, ironically true that the cliché that everyone was spouting was that the war would be over by Christmas. In reality, the next Christmas in Europe that would occur in the absence of war 
would be Christmas of 1918. In the early phases of the war, the first month, month and a half, Germany advanced westward quickly, and within a few weeks was less than 50 miles from the city of Paris. But they were finally stopped at the Battle of the Marne. Pretty quickly, the lines and the trenches of the Western Front, for the most part ossified, from the North Sea all the way down to the Swiss border, hundreds of miles. Now, the worst battles of the Western Front in this war were still to come. Some of the worst would occur in 1916. But nonetheless, by the end of 1914, there still had been a hell of a lot of mutual killing between Germans on the one side and the French and British on the other. There had already been uh, far more killing than in any of the wars of the past uh, century or so, at least in Europe. Casualties were already being reckoned in the hundreds of thousands, and total casualties on all sides uh, may have already exceeded a million. In addition to all the, the carnage, all of the participants had already been propagandized pretty heavily, both with what we might call pre-propaganda, meaning a lifetime of hearing the enemy being demonized in the media and in the schools that you attend, and also with the more specific acute propaganda, often hysterical, that really kicked in once the war began. Trench warfare has clearly taken its hold by late 1914, but it's not quite as developed and refined as it would be later in the war. There are still lots of colossal mistakes going on, and there's still a little bit of humanity every now and then shown, despite the propaganda, towards the other side. Little mercies here and there, even in the face of the slaughter. The trenches were still relatively crude compared to what they're going to evolve into over the next few years. And in fact, temperature and dampness were often as much of, of dangerous enemies as the enemy army out there across no man's land. In fact, in the winter of 1914-15, to 15, armies were suffering consistently more casualties from things like frostbite, trench foot, and other diseases than they were to enemy weaponry. So it's already a hellish miserable experience and already some people were starting to really have their doubts about keeping this thing going pope benedict the 15th actually on december 7th 1914 called for all of the warring governments to have a full official truce for christmas but none of the governments on either side of the war actually supported them. in fact some of them decided to do the opposite there apparently was concern among the belligerent governments, that their soldiers' morale might dip because of Christmas, that they might be overcome with, you know, benevolent feelings towards the other side or something like that, that they might actually take seriously some of the more uh, humanitarian messages found in Christianity. So on December 19th, the Allies launched a major attack on the Western Front. Typical of the attacks on the Western Front, it resulted in many casualties with very little change in the actual lines. In fact, this operation, just a week before Christmas, resulted in some of the worst casualties in the entire war up to that point. The Allied command actually thought that launching a mass offensive a week before Christmas would improve morale, but of course it had the total opposite effect. They tried other things to improve morale as well, and this was true of governments on both sides. Government sent and they encouraged private citizens, you know, friends, relatives of the soldiers to send little presents and packages for Christmas. 
Famously, all the British soldiers on the Western Front were sent a Christmas present from Princess Mary, which consisted of a card and a letter, along with tobacco for those who were smokers and candy for those who were not. Governments encouraged the people at home to send letters, presents, and so on to the soldiers in an attempt to buck up their morale. In some cases, it may have worked, but in some cases, it seems to have had the opposite effect. In other words, it made the soldiers even more sad and angry about their situation. It made them even more resentful of where they were and uh, even more desirous to go home. This was true of the British government, the French government, the German government. They also, all of them, they encouraged their populations to send letters and goodies and so on to the soldiers in the trenches. The truce itself, the Christmas truce, was not ordered or authorized by any government involved in the war. In fact, quite the opposite. It began spontaneously on the part of the actual grunts out there in the trenches. The truce began in several segments of the Western Front near Ypres in Belgium on Christmas Eve with the sounds of Germans singing Christmas carols. Yes, those evil, war-loving, subhuman orc German Huns started singing Christmas carols. On the other side of No Man's Land, Allied soldiers initially thought this was some sort of trick. Of course, much of what we associate today with Christmas, the decorations, the carols, and so on, a lot of it actually has German origins. And in fact, many of our most popular classic Christmas carols were originally German. And I don't know if it's still true today, but certainly 101 years ago, the Germans were the most Christmas-celebrating nation in Europe at the time. We're told that the carol that the German soldiers on the Western Front started singing first was Stille Nacht, which of course, is the original version of Silent Night. And when the English soldiers realized what it was they were singing, they began singing back Silent Night, same song in English. Several accounts from different places describe things along these lines. A German coming across no man's land carrying sort of a small makeshift Christmas tree. At the time, the Christmas tree was almost entirely a German thing. And as you might expect, the British soldiers and in a few areas, French soldiers on the other side are wondering, what the hell is this? This can't be serious, right? They're they're uh, trying to trick us, right? But they refrain from shooting and eventually realize this was genuine, that those horrible kraut barbarians were actually trying to be friendly for Christmas. And eventually British soldiers emerge from the trenches as well. They shook hands and so on. Other accounts in different locations describe exchanges of Christmas carols sung back and forth across no man's land for some time before the men started to cautiously come out of the trenches and greet each other. Now, we're told that in a few locations, some of the officers and NCOs tried to prevent this, but the men, generally enlisted men and uh, low-ranking officers, began to spontaneously come out of their trenches unarmed not intending to do anybody any harm. This is very much bottom-up, not top-down. No one saying uh, from from on high, either in the military or political chain of command, we're going to have a truce. It's the grunts on the bottom deciding for themselves. The German and Allied troops then overcame all of their brainwashing and all of the fear that they'd been inculcated with since childhood, and they met in no man's land, unarmed. Some of the Truce areas that occurred across the Western Front involved French soldiers, but it seems the majority were between British and German soldiers. And supposedly, many of the areas where truces took hold involved Saxons from Germany and Anglo-Saxons from Britain. 
guess they realized they had more in common with each other than they thought. They laughed and they talked where language barriers could be overcome. Of course, keep in mind, No Man's Land, the nasty area in between the opposing trench lines, was piled with dead bodies from recent fighting. So one of the first things those people going out there into No Man's Land to have some sort of truce are going to realize is there's just bodies lying everywhere. A lot of them are people you know. And so in many areas, one of the first things they started to do was to sort out the bodies and to bury them uh, and bring up a chaplain to give some sort of funeral service or whatever. And the surprising part is that the soldiers actually didn't just look the other way and allow, you know, the other side to collect their bodies and take care of them. They helped each other out. British soldiers helped bury dead Germans and vice versa. And in fact, they participated in each other's funeral services and prayers for their supposed enemies. Of course, it being Christmas and each side having different goodies, they did what peaceful people do, which is to trade. They started to trade little gifts and even in some cases, uh, certain uniform decorations and articles and so on. They traded smokes and candies that they've gotten from home. They began to joke with each other. They shared complaints about their own officers and the conditions in their trenches. And they realized they had a lot more in common with each other than they did with either side's leaders. In several areas, they took group photos with German and British soldiers mingled together, arms around each other. And in several areas, there were soccer games in no man's land. And over the course of this, as you might imagine... The soldiers realized that the men on the other side, the supposedly subhuman quote-unquote enemy, those guys were actually human beings, just like themselves. And that these grunts, the rank and file, they had more in common with each other than either side's grunts had with their own commanders and political leaders and so on. Now, to be fair, I want to point out this did not happen everywhere. In fact, there were plenty of areas along the hundreds of miles of trenches that comprised the Western Front where there was no truce and the soldiers just kept right on killing each other right through Christmas. Also, not everyone was operating in good faith. We do have accounts that in a few areas where there was a truce, some soldiers tried to take advantage of it to do things like uh, do recon on the other side's trenches and so on. But this seems to have been the exception rather than the norm. Most seem to have operated with some degree of good faith. In the areas where the truces took place, they lasted at least through Christmas Day, but in some areas, they continued on um, sometimes several days beyond Christmas. Altogether, it's estimated that about 100,000 soldiers participated to some degree in some sort of Christmas truce in 1914. Here are a few first-hand accounts from, I think, the early 80s, in a British BBC documentary where they actually talked to some World War I veterans who experienced the Christmas truce, obviously, who were still alive back in the early 80s. And so I'm going to let you hear a few first-hand accounts of what they say of what they experienced. It was rather foggy, actually, at first that morning. But when the fog cleared, we began to climb out of the trench and wave and then quickly jump in again in case they shot at us. But nobody did shoot, and eventually several people got out, and uh, some of us went forward beyond our barbed wire. Anyway, eventually a couple of chaps met in no man's land and shook hands and turned round and waved, and we all cheered, and then we flocked out like a football crowd, sort of. Um, 
running as fast as we could. It was very broken ground and people fell into shell holes and things, but still we all got into the middle eventually and we began to all shake hands and then we began to swap things like cigarettes and cigars and chocolate and cognac and we gave them a bit of rum and so on and everything got uh, you know, very friendly and happy. And we stayed out there the whole of the day. Meanwhile, similar unwarlike scenes were being repeated over two-thirds of the British 30-mile front, as battalion after battalion joined in the most remarkable act of fraternisation in modern war. There was no man's land, but an extraordinary sight. It was full of parties of Germans and British all meeting each other and talking and laughing, exchanging souvenirs, exchanging buttons and cap badges and so forth. I was walking along, and a chap came up to me, and he actually greeted me with the words, "Watch a cock, how's London? I said, I said, good Lord, you speak English well. He said, well, I am English. No, I said, you speak like a Londoner. He said, well, I'm a Londoner. I said, well, what the hell are you doing in the German army? He said, well, I'm a German. I'm a German Londoner. And apparently he had lived, he'd been, I think he had been born in Germany, but he'd gone to England immediately afterwards with his parents, and they had a small business in the east end of London somewhere. And he'd been brought up in England and gone to school in England and everything. It was all quiet, no firing, and uh, no guns, artillery. And uh, we had rumours passed along the line that was a, a meeting with the Germans and British, but we didn't think any more of it. Until later, we saw the Germans coming out their trenches near us, almost opposite. And we, all curious, did the same thing. We came out of our trenches and we walked towards these Germans. And, of course, not many of them spoke English. We did find one, a young waiter. He'd been in, uh, he told us he'd worked at De Kaiser's Royal Hotel, Blackfriars, in London. He had a wife and two children. And he said he didn't like, he didn't want the war at all. And I think, you know, if that sort of thing had gone on more, we may have seen the end of fighting, the end of the war. How it ever happened, of course, I don't know that anybody can explain it. It did just happen. Nobody said, definitely, we will all have a truce right along the line and uh, there will be no firing. Nobody said that. It just occurred. And uh, but it was all... Uh, it made us, uh, you see, I was only a very irresponsible young private soldier then uh, with no responsibilities at all and it just made us all roar with laughter because we thought of all the generals and people purple, getting purple in the face and there's nothing they could do. And anyway, it turned out all right. The Germans were in the same position, obviously. And uh, the only final result of it was that... Uh, and we were quite happy about it, was that we had taken out of the front line, and it was a beastly bit of front line, about knee-deep in water, that, where I was living. So we were pulled out of the, the front line that night, and um, we said, well, jolly good, a very fine result of a truce. In contrast to the common soldier, of course, the military and political hierarchy were horrified that all the resources they've invested over the decades in sort of hate and fear-centered propaganda could be undone if too many of their men actually fraternized with the so-called enemy 
And the last thing the elite wanted was for the common people to realize that none of them really had any personal interest in this slaughter and that only their respective ruling elites would. As American Socialist Party activist Eugene Debs put it several years later in a speech that landed him in federal prison thanks to Woodrow Wilson, the master class has always declared the wars. The subject class has always fought the battles. In the aftermath of this, many leaders on both sides issued staunch rebukes of the whole concept of a truce, and many of them threatened their soldiers with severe consequences if this should ever happen again. For example, British General Sir Horace Smith Dorian, who was staunchly opposed, issued very strict orders against it and tried to get names of any officers who'd participated in any truces. Interestingly, another individual who was vehemently opposed to the Christmas truce was an obscure young German corporal named Adolf. You can probably guess his last name. Now, in the aftermath of the truce, stories about it began to make their way into the press, especially the British press, which at the time had the least amount of censorship. It took about a week, but they started to make their way in and eventually grab some front page headlines. There was some coverage, but much, much less in France and Germany, where there was more censorship. There were some small-scale Christmas truces that apparently did occur the following Christmas in 1915, despite all the attempts by commanders to preemptively crack down on it. And they really tried, pulled out all the stops to prevent this from happening again. The German commanders, for example, said that fraternization with the enemy would be treated as high treason, and any man engaging in it would be summarily shot. Allied orders were similar, though a little bit more vague. And by the time you got to Christmas of 1916, after some of the most bloody battles of the Western Front had taken place, like Verdun and the Somme, and after the various governments involved had broken their previous pledges and treaties to not use poison gas, and it started using that against each other, hardly anyone, even the common soldier, was anymore in a mood to have a Christmas truce, regardless of orders of commanders. For a long time, the Christmas truce was not terribly well known, but in recent decades, it's received attention, and it's now been referenced and depicted in a lot of different media. My two favorite depictions of the Christmas truce are in the 2005 film, it's a French film, Joyous Noel, and in John McCutcheon's song, Christmas in the Trenches. I just want to share with you a few passages from Christmas in the Trenches. The song is based on real accounts, but is focused on a fictionalized uh, British soldier. Anyway, skipping down um, a few verses into the song, they, uh, he mentions singing back and forth of the Christmas carols, and uh, then you know they, they sing Still a Noct and then Silent Night. And then I want to skip down to the part where a German soldier begins, begins to come across no man's land. There's someone coming towards us, the frontline sentry cried. All sights were fixed on one lone figure trudging from their side. His truce flag, like a Christmas star, shone on that plain so bright, as he bravely strode unarmed into the night. But anyway, the last last uh, verse of the song absolutely nails it, I think. My name is Francis Tolliver. In Liverpool I dwell. Each Christmas comes since World War I. I've learned its lessons well. That the ones who call the shots won't be among the dead and lame. And on each end of the rifle, we're the same. Oh, my name is Francis Tolliver. In Liverpool I dwell. 
Each Christmas comes since World War One. I've learned its lessons well. But the ones who call the shots won't be among the dead and lame. And on each end of the rifle, we're the same. think that nails it, that the common people on both sides really don't have any beef with each other. Extensive studies by various governments and scholars have shown that for most of history, the vast majority of people do not naturally want to kill their fellow man, even in the heat of battle. And these studies have shown that right up through World War II, the majority of frontline infantrymen do not regularly fire their rifle at the enemy. Either they don't fire, or they deliberately miss. And it's not out of any sort of cowardice, like these people are are so afraid of battle, that they're just hiding behind a rock. Many of these same individuals do things like charging through enemy fire and braving other hazards in order to save their comrades. They just really, really have an aversion to killing their fellow man. And it wasn't until after World War II that the U.S. military began really zeroing in on training methods that are designed to get soldiers to shoot the enemy purely by reflex. These methods seem to have largely succeeded. By Vietnam, for instance, evidence indicates that a much higher percentage of frontline soldiers were regularly shooting to kill the enemy. But PTSD also went way up, because it seems that PTSD is much worse from you killing than it is from you enduring someone trying to kill you. And if you want more explanation on this, read Dave Grossman's book on killing. Interestingly, there are lower rates of PTSD among people in the military who actually probably see some of the nastiest stuff and brave some of the worst hazards, but who don't normally kill. Medics, for example, combat medics will have lower rates of PTSD than infantrymen, even though combat medics see some horrific stuff and oftentimes have to brave some serious hazards. But most of the time, they're not, their, their top job is not trying to kill the enemy. It's trying to help the wounded. And so they tend to have lower rates and severity of PTSD than those who have been involved in killing. So in other words, the elites have significantly, by changing the training methods, significantly increased the proportion of soldiers who will kill in combat. But they seem to have done this at the cost of having much greater instances of debilitating trauma. But of course, up from their lofty sociopathic perspective, who the hell cares? After all the grunts, they're just pawns. They're there to be used up and worn out and cast aside, just means to the elite's ends. The fact that these men in the trenches in 1914 were able to put aside their differences and interact peacefully for Christmas shows that there's really no conceivable reason why they couldn't get along like that all the time if they were left to their own devices. Most would rather live and let live. There's a lot of evidence to support this. But what gets in the way, what prevents this from occurring, this sort of you know peaceful interaction, are the elites and the institutions of both sides, the state in particular, which works 
very diligently to prevent this from being the default position between people that it in fact would be otherwise. And big part of their methods are dehumanizing the enemy, the other, through constant low-level pre-propaganda when there's not an active war. And then, of course, when a war does happen, they amp up that propaganda much more acute in order to um, play upon the preliminary work that's already been done through that pre-propaganda. And the book Propaganda by Jacques Ellul is a great place to get more analysis of how this works. And of course, to those who are going to go fight, they're instilled with a version of training different from what was taught back in World War I. The training today, uh, and, and really increasingly ever since World War II, has been much more focused on making killing the enemy a purely reflexive act. In other words, one that is done without thinking. Because if you think, you might come to dangerous conclusions. Conclusions that the people in charge don't want you to come to. You might decide that the person you're being ordered to kill is your fellow man, and that you've got no beef with him, and that he wouldn't even be a threat to you if not for this ridiculous situation that your respective sides as ruling classes have forced you into. You might decide that the guy you're supposed to kill is just a simple working class chump like yourself, and that his rulers and yours have a disagreement that maybe they ought to settle in a cage match or something without involving you and millions of other people like you. If you think, you might actually realize that your real enemy is not the poor chump in the other trench over there. It's the guy behind you telling you to do these things. It's the ones making the wars. And those are dangerous thoughts. We can't have that. So we got to propagandize all those thought crimes away. Fact is, unless you're a genuine psychopath or sociopath, and the vast majority of people are not, it is necessary to dehumanize the other side in order to get your people to kill them. Dehumanization is a very powerful thing. It's a very nasty and ugly thing. It's also a key part of making people accept the institution of slavery. You've got to dehumanize the slave, something that I'm encountering in my research, by the way, for my upcoming mini-series. I'm not sure when I'll start doing it. Um, still have a lot of research to do on the history of chattel slavery in America. The fact is, those who profited from the slave labor system had to dehumanize their slaves in order to make society at large comfortable with exploiting and abusing them. And those who seek to benefit from war have to do the same job of dehumanization of the so-called enemy in order to make people accept that, in order to make people accept the slaughter that's going to occur. So this story of the Christmas truce is in my judgment, both beautiful and tragic. It was a true bottom-up grassroots, spontaneous flowering of humanity among many of these enlisted men and lower-ranking officers in the German, British, and French armies on the Western Front. It was not the result of any government deciding to have a truce. In fact, they very much didn't want this to happen and tried to prevent it from ever happening in the future. So it was beautiful. These men were ignoring their so-called leaders and doing what was right. But the Christmas truce was also tragic. It was tragic because it was just a very brief pause in the slaughter and only in a few places. It did not affect all of the soldiers on the Western Front. And of course, the truce only lasted between one and several days, depending on where you were. And most people, regardless of the remorse they now felt, did go back to the business of fighting once the, once the truce was over. And it's doubly tragic in the long term because states 
learned from this episode and have done many things in the past 101 years to make this sort of disobedience, this sort of humanity, much less likely to occur. But maybe, just maybe, humanity will find a way around this sort of fear and hatred. One can hope. Thanks for listening. I'm personally not a religious person. I celebrate basically a secular slash pagan Christmas. But whatever your beliefs and your practices are this time of year, I hope you've gotten something out of this episode. And I truly hope that you are enjoying this time of year in your own way with your loved ones. And I hope that you can resist the dehumanizing propaganda of fear and hatred, not just on Christmas, but throughout the year. Thank you for listening to the Dangerous History Podcast. Make sure to check out my website, profcj.org, that's profcj.org, to find the show notes for this and every other Dangerous History Podcast episode. While there, you can also email subscribe to the website over on the right-hand side. You'll see a place to enter your email address, and if you sign up there, you'll simply get an email alert every time I post something new to my website. I promise you won't get any junk or spam or anything like that from me. For any correspondence, please feel free to email me at the email address profcj at profcj.org. You can also connect with and follow me and the show on Facebook and on Twitter, and you can subscribe to the podcast in a variety of ways, including iTunes and Stitcher. If you like the show, there are multiple ways you can help it out. One simply is to spread the word about it any way you have available to you, whether social media, online discussion postings, word of mouth, or whatever, to people that you think might like the show. Also, please consider leaving a review or a rating in venues such as iTunes or Stitcher. There are also multiple ways you can help out the show financially. One is to go to patreon.com slash profcj. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash p-r-o-f-c-j. And sign up to support the show on a per-episode basis. If you do that... For any amount, I will thank you by name in the next episode that I record. And if you've signed up for at least a dollar per episode, you'll have access to special monthly bonus episodes via Patreon that are available no place else. You can also visit profcj.org slash donate to donate to the show via PayPal or Bitcoin. And you can also help the show out financially by doing your Amazon shopping after first going through any of the affiliate links found on my website. And if you do that, I will get a small commission from Amazon at no cost to you. So thanks again for listening to the Dangerous History Podcast. This has been Prof. CJ, helping you learn the past so you can understand the present and prepare for the future.